At Global Genes, we know a rare diagnosis changes everything. You weren't given a playbook on how to cope, how to take that next step, and you certainly weren't handed a blueprint on how to build an advocacy organization or successfully bring a therapy to market. The good news is that rare disease advocates are some of the most inspiring, innovative activists on the planet. And Global Genes works to bring the community together to share best practices, create important introductions, and help catalyze powerful collaborations. That's why Global Genes would like to invite you to join us for the fourth annual Rare Patient Advocacy Summit on September 24th and 25th in Huntington Beach, California. The goal of this year's summit is for patients, caregivers, and advocates to walk away equipped with actionable next steps, whether you've been recently diagnosed or building a disease community, thinking about funding early stage research, actively engaged in developing a treatment, or have been advocating in rare diseases for decades. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org forward slash 2015 summit. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Caregivers, an often overlooked part of the healthcare continuum, play a critical role in the world of rare diseases. But with this role, usually taken on by family members, comes physical, emotional, and financial stress. We spoke to Grace Whitting, Director of Strategic Partnerships for the National Alliance for Caregiving, about her organization's study of caregivers, the issues they face, and what policy changes are needed to better support them. Grace, thanks for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited to be here. When we talk about rare disease, much of the focus we put on it is on the patient, but the often unsung heroes of this world are the family caregivers who we're going to focus on today. Your organization every five years does a benchmark study on caregivers broadly, not just pertaining to rare disease. And I thought we could start there. What do we know about who the typical caregiver is today? So thanks so much for that question. I think that's a great place to start. And I'll just note um, here at the National Alliance for Caregiving, that study we do is with AARP, um, who typically focuses on older adults. But in this case, the Caregiving in the U.S. study focuses on caregivers across the board, across lifespan. And so we get a lot of good information generally about caregiving, who's doing care, and what that looks like. Um, The typical family caregiver as you probably hear in the news or other types of media, is a 49-year-old woman who's caring for an older relative. So that's for a long time been sort of the standard when we talk about caregiving, you know, someone who's middle-aged, who's older, but um, still in the middle of their career and sometimes balancing children at home. What we look at when we dig into the data, though, is that's starting to change. So uh, in 2015, 60% of caregivers are women, but 40% are men. So we're seeing men really step up to the plate, take on more of a role as caregivers within their family. 
And we're also seeing a lot of diversity. So 13% of caregivers in the U.S. are African American or Black American. 6% are Asian American Pacific Islander. 17% are Hispanic and Latino. And a little, the majority is are white, but not as much as you would think. Only 62% of caregivers are white. So I think what we're seeing is sort of a changing landscape for what caregiving is and more groups um, really identifying as caregivers. And is that simply a matter of changing demographics or are there other drivers of that? I think changing demographics is certainly part of what's going on. I think the other thing is we're starting to think differently about who is doing caring. And you see this discussion a lot on the parental side. So, for example, men feel more comfortable taking paternity leave in 2015 than they might have been 20 or 30 years ago. And when we look at the age breakout, if you look at the age bracket of 18 to 14, 18 to 34, so what we describe as the millennial population, caregivers are actually equally as likely to be male or female. So um, that's unique to that age group. And so we're seeing it starting to change there. So I think part of it is demographic. Part of it is more comfort with this idea of um, different types, styles of family or different modes of living uh, that are more intergenerational. I think we've also seen a drop overall in the number of caregivers, but that the caregivers who are in that role are taking on more. So one of the things our report focused on was higher hour caregivers, people who on average are giving 62 hours a week providing care for a loved one. And we're seeing more of those. So over time, there are less caregivers available, but they're being asked to take on more. Well, I'll put that into some context for us in terms of time devoted to caregiving. What time commitment do we generally see people making? So I think the average is about 24.4 hours a week. So if you think about having essentially a part-time job on top of whatever else you're doing in your life, that's the typical caregiver. Now, a third of caregivers, though, are in that higher hour bracket. So those are the ones that I mentioned that we're doing the 62 hours a week in care. And that's really split up in a lot of different ways. Um, One is what we describe as activities of daily living. So these are going to be um, helping people with mobility, getting up in the morning, brushing your teeth, getting dressed, eating, that type of thing. There's also instrumental activities of daily living, which are more physical and functional. So, for example, transportation, uh, grocery shopping, housework, managing finances. So this is um, less delicate type work, but still really important. And then there's medical and nursing tasks, which I think are key when we think about rare disease community, because you have a lot of families, they might be working with the feeding tube, or they might be um, dealing with catheters, changing wounds, that type of thing. And there's about six in 10 caregivers overall in the U.S. who are doing that type of medical and nursing task. Um, so, So a mix between those three things, but there are certain groups of caregivers that take on more. So, for example, if you're caring for a spouse or a significant other, um, you typically are doing more hours, around 44 hours a week. To, To what extent are caregivers in their roles by choice? How much of this is driven by their own economic realities or or their feelings of obligation? I think that's a really interesting question, this issue of choice. So, You know, one of the questions we ask verbatim is, do you feel you had a choice in taking on this responsibility for caring for your loved one? And that could really be taken a couple different ways. You know, there's the aspect of, 
did I have a choice in that? Did I do this because, like you're mentioning, it's an economic reality. This is the only thing I could do to be able to care for this person. Or is it choice in the sense of it was always the expectation that I would do this? So we see this in a lot of sort of cultural studies, you know, that sometimes you'll hear people say in the Hispanic community or the Latina community or in Asian American communities that the expectation is that you're going to take on the role of caregiving because that is what you know, a good daughter does, or that is how families operate. Um, Even so, regardless of how you take that question, when you look at it, about 50% of caregivers uh, said they did have a choice, 49% said no, but as it went up in intensity, more caregivers were likely to say that they had no choice uh, in taking on the caregiver role, which I think is really interesting. And choice is also related to this idea of having more emotional stress, more physical and financial strain, and having reported worse health, so poor, fair health, and saying that caregiving actually made health worse. So that perception of being able to choose uh, whether or not you're a caregiver, I think, is really important to how you fare as a caregiver, both emotionally, financially, um, and in your relationship with the family member you're caring for. Well, I think that's something that, that often doesn't get a lot of attention, but you know, in terms of the stress and strain on caregivers, what do we know about that? So we know that the more complex or demanding the care situation is, the more intense the stress and strain are going to be. So, for example, if you look at someone who's caring for somebody that has a mental or behavioral health issue, someone who's living with a person who needs care, that higher hour group I mentioned before, those who are doing medical nursing tasks or even those who are the primary caregivers, those folks tend to report that they're having worsening health and about one in five caregivers overall would report physical strain Um, and a little bit more about two in five saying that caregiving was emotionally stressful. So I think what's interesting is that as caregiving becomes more intense, becomes more complex, and there's um, more that you're trying to coordinate, that stress is going to increase on the caregiver. So we see it a lot with spouses and parents. Um, caring in those situations, and typically more than when you're caring for someone who might be a friend or not a relative. And the other place you see it a lot is in chronic or long-term conditions, so something that's ongoing um, that tends to be time-intensive and extends the caregiving role. Well, there's also a financial toll here. You think of caregivers having to give up their ability to work at least least part-time What kind of financial stress do caregivers face? So there's a lot of different kinds of financial stresses. One that you allude to is having to change your work because of the caregiving role. So there are a fair number of caregivers who are working. About 6 and 10 say that they were employed sometime in the past year. And and most of those caregivers report that caregiving impacts that work relationship. So that's one piece of it. I think the other thing to keep in mind is for rare disease caregivers, There's an aspect of having a lack of access to therapies or treatments that would be helpful for the person who's managing an an ongoing disease, and that creates financial stress. And then there's also this issue of having to be able to travel to get access to specialized health professionals, clinicians, um, other folks who may be able to provide some treatment or relief, or even to provide respite for a complicated disease. And that can add additional financial stress over and beyond what a typical caregiver who might be caring for something like Alzheimer's or dementia may be facing. 
I think the other thing to think about is when we look at those caregivers who are both living with the person they care for and they're giving higher hours, so at least 21 hours a week, um, they tend to report financial strain more often. So it's, it's that sort of snowball effect is that if you're when you're living for someone with somebody and you're also giving a lot of your time, then you're more likely to have issues with finances related to caregiving. I think, as you alluded to earlier, when people think of caregivers, they're typically thinking of of maybe adult children caring for elderly parents. Any sense what part of the caregiving world is parents caring for children with a rare disease? You know, I think that's sort of an open question right now. We have a, a part of it is definitional. So we don't know yet, you know, uh, we don't have a firm number on how many families are managing rare disease because I think to some degree there's a lot of families that are working with a disease that's been undiagnosed. So that's one thing that I would sort of keep in consideration. Um, one of the things we're thinking about here at the Alliance is working with the rare disease community to really dig into caregivers of, of persons with rare disease and to put some numbers around it and to define it a little bit better. You know, I think, too, the challenge is when you're a parent caring for a child that has a disability or a disease, that's a little bit different relationship than the relationship you have as an adult caring for your adult parent or caring for your spouse. So the needs, I think, are a little bit different there as well. You, you alluded to this a bit a moment ago, but are there ways you would say being a caregiver for a, a child with a rare disease is different than saying being a, a different kind of caregiver? Yeah, I mean, one of the biggest things is I think sort of this lack of public understanding and empathy um, for some of these disease states because people really don't understand it. And, you know, you see this a little bit with Alzheimer's and dementia. So you'll hear stories about, you know, the person with dementia is mistaken for being um, intoxicated and maybe arrested. And then so there, you know, some challenges there with people interacting with the public. But I think that's amplified in the rare disease space. So we have, not only do you have to explain to your family, your friends, um, perhaps if it's a child, you know, the child's school system, what this disease is, but you also have sort of um, healthcare providers and insurance companies or other payers that you have to describe what the disease is why it's important and what the treatment is or isn't and sort of really be an advocate for them in a way that you wouldn't have to do with the more common disease state. So, for example, my physician is going to know what dementia is, but they might not really understand how to treat hemophilia. So what can I do as a parent to really educate them or as a sister or, you know, a spouse? And I think that part is extremely challenging for parents in this space. And I think the other thing sort of related to that is, having um, so little access to treatments, and then often when there are treatments available, finding a way to pay for those treatments if they're not covered by insurance or, or government programs. So I think that can be challenging. And then there's also, you know, sort of what's unspoken. Uh, you know, even in the healthcare world, we don't always talk about sort of this issue around what happens when we have an advanced illness, you know, or even an illness progresses to the end of life. And we know that it's extremely challenging for caregivers because they're balancing bereavement and feelings of grief and oftentimes feelings of guilt or even shame 
um, with wanting to enjoy the time they have with the person who's here. And that's especially challenging, I think, when it's a child that, you know, you want your child to to grow up and have a full life. And sometimes, unfortunately, the disease that they may be managing has a short prognosis. And so you're, you're really struggling um, with grief at the same time that you're trying to enjoy what you have. And I think that's something that you know, from a research perspective, we've seen a lot of the work in palliative care and end of life and, so, and sort of this relationship come out of the rare disease community because it is something that, you know, they've had to grapple with in a way that maybe other communities haven't had to grapple with as, uh, as acutely. I'd argue that caregivers by and large are still a, an essential but fairly invisible part of the healthcare system today not terribly well supported. Are are there policy changes that are needed to better support caregivers? Absolutely. I mean, one of the easiest, simplest ways, I think, to help support a caregiver is to get the caregiver included, you know, on the medical record as somebody who can provide information. And if you think of someone who's caring for a child with a rare disease, you know, including maybe some of the secondary decision makers as well in the medical record as people who can help make decisions, who are familiar with the care plan, and that those caregivers are looped in. So if we are in the you know, the doctor's office, and they say that we're expecting you to take on, you know, changing a catheter, then making sure that the caregiver is not only educated on what that does and how that works, but also how to do that particular medical task, and that they have the willingness and ability to do so. I mean, so often we see, you know, where a patient is discharged into the community and, you know, the doctor is saying, you know, for this person, we want you to do X, Y, Z, and the caregiver isn't trained on that or or they don't really understand what they're doing. And they have a lot of fear and anxiety around, am I going to be able to do this healthcare task with essentially what a nurse would do on my own? So I think that's one thing is making sure not only that we're including them in the medical record, but even the bigger piece, we're including the caregiver as part of the care team, and we're encouraging them to be able to weigh in on what makes sense for their for their loved one. And, you know, I think the other thing to think about is um, finding a way to educate caregivers on the different options they have for care. So you see this a lot where sometimes the patients... Um, their families, they've researched a particular treatment that they want to pursue, and they get some pushback from the doctor and other clinicians about, you know, being able to really choose that particular type of care. So I think making caregivers feel comfortable to say, you know, this is the type of outcome we want. We want It's important to us that, you know, our loved one is has a high quality of life, that they experience minimal pain, that we're able to help them engage, you know, in school or community or with their friends to the degree that that's possible. And being able to say that to your doctor and be a trusted partner rather than someone who's sort of antagonizing the system, that to some degree is something that has to come from physicians and, and the other on the clinical team, a willingness to really listen to the caregiver and to the patient and the family as a whole and say, okay, you're a trusted partner in this. We're, we're equals. We're not, you know, this isn't just a top-down approach. Grace Whiting, Director of Strategic Partnerships for the National Alliance for Caregiving. Grace, thanks so much for your time today. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, 
go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com. <laughs>